May grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is a joy, honor, and privilege to be with you to worship King Jesus together today and to more specifically have this privilege to stand behind this prayer desk to proclaim to you the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Most of you do not know me. A few of you may know me vicariously. Uh, I grew up in this city and was learning to preach sitting in the back of this church. And God has blessed my life and ministry through the ministry of Dr. John MacArthur and the ministry of Grace Community Church. And I'm speechless with gratitude for the privilege of worshiping with you today. If you would get your copy of God's Word and be turning with me to Psalm 51, I want to breathe a word of prayer and ask God's blessings on our time together. And then I want you to hear the reading of God's Word up front to lay the foundation for all that we will endeavor to say. And then after we prayed and read, we'll together Listen for what God will say to us today right out of what he has already said to us in this holy word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the privilege to address you in prayer as our Father in heaven through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It opens for us a new and living way to you. We thank you for this Lord's Day and for this assembly of your people and acknowledge that you are present among us whether we feel you or not and ask that you would manifest yourself to us in a life-changing way as you make plain for us the wisdom of your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Give us understanding We will observe your word and keep it with our whole heart. Guide my thoughts, guard my heart, govern my words so that everything I say would be consistent with sound doctrine. And as the seed of your word is planted and watered, we know that only you can make it grow. So we reserve for you in advance the highest praise and full credit for the fruit that shall come from this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Permit me to label this message the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer. It was the time when kings waged war. David, however, sent his troops into battle while he remained at home. From his palace balcony, he spied a beautiful young woman bathing on her rooftop. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It didn't matter to him that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was out fighting David's battles. It didn't matter until he received the news that Bathsheba was pregnant. David gave Uriah a furlough, expecting him to come home to Bathsheba. That would help him cover his tracks. But Uriah refused to go home and enjoy intimacy with his wife, while his comrade in arms were still serving in harm's way. So David finally sent Uriah back to the battlefield, carrying a secret message that would instruct the leaders of the army to give Uriah an impossible mission. After Uriah's death, David married Bathsheba. No one was supposed to know about David's adultery, Bathsheba's pregnancy, or Uriah's murder. But, capital S, someone knew. 
the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to visit David. He showed up and reported to David a local news story. There was a rich man with a large flock that lived next to a poor man that had only one beloved lamb. And when the rich man welcomed guests, he stole his neighbor's one lamb and killed it to serve his guest. David was outraged. He demanded that whoever that culprit was be brought to justice and put to death. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Recognizing that his sin had not actually been covered as he thought, David says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 is the complete statement of David's confession. It is the fourth of seven so-called penitential psalms or psalms that are prayers of repentance. The others being Psalms 6, 32, 38, 102, 130, 143. It is safe to say, however, that Psalm 51 is the chief prayer of repentance in the Psalms. For that matter, Psalm 51 is arguably the greatest example of repentance, confession, and forgiveness in all of sacred scripture. The heading, the superscription, the title above verse 1 reads, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This psalm is a record of David's private prayer of confession to God after Nathan confronted him with his sin. And yet, he submitted this psalm of confession to the choir master to be used by the people of God in public corporate worship. This deeply personal Psalm of repentance then is for everyone, including you and me. Repentance is an essential but neglected element of prayer. We are hesitant to come clean with God in our prayers, but that should not be the case. Because God responds to repentance. In fact, that's the good news of this sad psalm. God always answers the prayer of genuine repentance. God always answers the prayer of genuine repentance. And so the question on the table is, how should sinners pray to get right with God? There are three answers in Psalm 51. 
First, David prays, forgive me. Forgive me. Sometimes in prayer, we ramble about until we get to the point. Not David in Psalm 51. David begins this psalm with a plea for mercy and a confession of sin. He begins by saying to God, I need mercy. Verses 1 and 2 state David's threefold problem. The end of verse 1, transgressions. Verse 2, iniquity and sin. Transgression is rebellious disobedience. When I was growing up as in Inglewood, me and the boys in the neighborhood would play in the, in the next door neighbor's yard just because we knew he didn't want us playing in his yard. That's the spirit of transgression. Transgression is rebellious disobedience. Iniquity is inward perversion, inward corruption. Uh, Iniquity is that I have a virus in my software that makes my hardware malfunction. And sin is spiritual failure, where we miss the mark of God's righteous standard. David says, I am guilty of all of it. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. And notice how he owns it with personal pronouns, my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. And yet, even though he admits that he is guilty of transgression, iniquity, and sin, in these opening verses, David makes bold requests. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That might not seem big to you, but if you were watching this on court TV, you would be blown away. Imagine a defendant standing trial who just begins by agreeing with the prosecution, offering no defense, and then simply pleading for clemency. This is what David does here. Not because he disregards the law, but because he knows the judge. He prays for Mercy, not because he deserves it. He prays for mercy with confidence in the character of God. Look again at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your loyal love, according to your covenant-keeping love. And then he also appeals to God's abundant mercy, the compassionate love of God. 
that can be pictured in the unconditional love a mother has for her child. David begins by crying out to God, I need mercy. And then he says to God, I have sinned. Beginning at verse 3, David models for us how to offer a prayer of confession. Let me just note how he talks to God here about his sin. First, David takes responsibility for his sin. For I know my transgression, verse 3, and my sin is ever before me. For months, David acted like he did not know his transgression. But after he is confronted by Nathan, he knows that he cannot hide from God. And he here comes clean. I know, Lord, my transgression. I know what your commandment is, and I determined to do what I wanted to do. But as a result, my sin is ever before me. That's a big statement of the spiritual paranoia of unconfessed guilt. W.A. Jones called it the problem of a present past. David says, everywhere I turn, I am confronted with reminders of my sin. The, 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 The bathtub reminds me of the first time I saw Bathsheba. A glass of wine reminds me of how I tried to get Uriah drunk and send him home. A letter from a servant reminds me of that note of conspiracy that I had Uriah to send with his own hand leading to his murder. He says, God would not let me turn without reminding me of what I have done. My sin is ever before me. I have no choice but to take responsibility for my transgressions. And then he confesses his guilt. David sinned against a lot of people when he committed these acts. And yet he says in verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is not suggesting that his sin had no impact or effect on others. David is acknowledging that the effect of his sins on others was collateral damage. The ultimate target was God. It was God's holiness that he defiled. It was God's commandments that he broke. It was God's authority that he rebelled against. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, he says in Genesis 39 verse 9, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not not against Mr. Potiphar, but against God. Ultimately, all of our sin is against God. It is a theological issue long before it is an ethical issue. And so David says, Lord, I know 
that I have sinned against you. I have done what is evil in your sight. If, if the people didn't see it, I know you saw it, Lord. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, Lord, you have the right to say or do whatever you want to because I am guilty. I'm giving you all the evidence against me. And however you treat me, you are justified and blameless in your judgments. Because it is, it is I who am in the wrong. And he didn't make any excuses. When I was, many years ago, I bought a book. Sometimes I've bought books just for the titles. I bought a book of sermons years ago just for the title. The title of the book was, Lord, I've Sinned. And the subtitle was, But I Have Several Good Excuses. And that's the attitude with which we pray. But you can't make confession and make excuses at the same time. So David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's be clear. By this verse, David is not blaming his parents for what he had done. He's not making excuses. Mark it down, saints. My past may explain me, but it does not excuse me. David is not looking for someone else to blame. To the contrary, he is just again confessing his guilt to God so that there will be no reasonable doubt that would let him off the hook. He is saying that my adultery with Bathsheba and my murder of Uriah were not out of the ordinary, out of character acts. They were reflections of my deep-rooted sin. He says, Lord, I did what I did because I am who I am. I didn't do it merely because I messed up this time. I did it because I am a sinner. No children were born in the innocence of the garden. Every child is born in a fallen world with a sinful nature. We sin because we are sinners. And then he models here to tell the truth. Behold, verse 6, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here, David is contrasting his sin with God's standard. God desires truth in the inward being. But after David's sin, he lied about it for as long as he could. He would have kept lying, except that God would not allow David to live in his hypocrisy any longer. And by confronting him with this sin, it was an expression of the character of God who delights in truth in the inward being. It was God seeking to teach him wisdom in the secret heart. And so David in the first verses of this psalm just comes clean with God. I need mercy because I have sinned. And God forgave David. Friend, I have good news for you today. 
by his grace and mercy in Christ, God still forgives sin. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. How should a sinner pray to get right with God? First, you should pray, forgive me. Secondly, you should pray, change me. Not just forgive me, but change me. David prayed for sparing mercy, not cheap grace. Cheap grace seeks forgiveness without conversion. It's, Lord, have mercy while I keep doing what I want to do. James Boyce says, pardon and purity. These are the two great needs of every human being because each of us are sinners by deed and by nature, just as David was. The good news is that the God who cleanses Sin is also the God who changes sinners. On one hand here, David says, God cleanses sin. How does he do it? David says, God God can wash your sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Purge me. That is, descend me, unsend me. Clean up what my sin has defiled. Hyssop was a spongy plant used as a, as a small brush. It was with hyssop that the children of Israel put blood on the doorposts in the Passover. Priests would use hyssop to ceremonially cleanse lepers or those who had touched the dead. David uses it here to declare that God is able to cleanse the worst of sin stains. Lord, if you purge me with hyssop, I will be clean. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. And then he prays, wash me. Wash me is not a simple, gentle wipe with a damp cloth. This is Deep scrubbing of stubborn sin. Divine cleansing is painful. 
But if you bring your sin to God and let him wash you, David says, I shall be whiter than snow. God can take our black sins and cleanse it in red blood and make us whiter than snow. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, says the Lord, let us reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, I will make it white as snow. Though it is red as crimson, I will make it white like wool. God washes sin. God heals sin. Notice verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness states the ironic cost of sin. We sin thinking that we will find joy and gladness in sin, only to discover that sin brings sorrow, not joy. Sin brings grief, not gladness. Amen. Amen for that. Amen, that if you are God's child, he will not let you live in sin and feel good about it. He wants you to recognize that joy and gladness are ultimately only found in him. And here in profound language, David, at the bottom of verse 8, describes the emotional and physical effects of unaddressed guilt. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David speaks a little further about that in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. For day and night, Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Let me bottom line that for you, friend. If you don't deal with your guilt, your guilt will deal with you. David says physically, emotionally, psychologically, as well as spiritually, guilt was dealing with me. But in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God washes sin. God heals sin. And God clears sin. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. In the Psalms, hiding, God's hiding face is, is usually not a good thing. It, it means for him to withdraw his favor. But here David prays that God would hide his face from his sin. God is omniscient. He knows everything known, unknown, and knowable. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And yet this merciful God will hide his face from the sins of those who genuinely repent. And he'll blot out all your iniquities. All of us in this room have 
bad spiritual credit. And God's files against us are unhackable. But if you confess your sins and repent of your sins and do faith in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, he will delete the files. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says it this way, And you who were dead in your trespasses and, your, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. God cleanses sin, and the God who cleanses sin is the God who can change sinners. Verse 10 is the golden verse of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create is the word from Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And that's how God changes sinners. It is all by his sovereign grace. It is nothing that we do. It is all of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. In Christ, God creates within us a clean heart. In Christ, God renews a right spirit within us. Verse 11 says, Cast me not away from your presence. That is powerful, provocative language. David is more concerned about divine communion than divine blessings. I'm, I'm not merely concerned about the, what my, the blessings my sin will cost me. I, I don't, I don't want to lose your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, if I can paraphrase. <laughs> Don't deal with me the way you dealt with Saul. That's what he's saying. When when Saul sinned against the Lord, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. David says, please, Lord, don't. Don't deal with me the way you dealt with. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And praise God that in Christ Jesus, that is not something we as Christians need to pray. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you have been sealed until the day of redemption. When, When... You sin against God as a Christian. The Holy Spirit who lives within us is grieved by our sin. But thank God he doesn't move out. He confronts us. He convicts us so that he might convert us and that he might, verse 12, restore 
to us the joy of salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Would you note that verse 12 reminds us that godliness is characterized by joy. Psalm 1611, you will show me the way of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But joy and sin cannot coexist. So if you have lost your joy, don't blame people. Don't blame circumstances. Don't blame Satan. Check your heart for sin. Get right with God and ask him, to uphold you with a willing spirit. I, I need to move on. But uphold me with a willing spirit is David's acknowledgement. Lord, if you don't keep me, I'll go back to the stuff that you've rescued me from. And I need you to uphold me so that I might live with willful submission to your divine will. How then should sinners pray? Three answers in the text. First, David prays, forgive me. Secondly, David prays, change me. Thirdly, David prays, use me. Use me. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, he said, woe is me. I'm done. I'm ruined. God mercifully spared him, graciously forgave him. And then God let him overhear a call for volunteers. Who will go for us? Who will we send? And Isaiah 6 and 8, Isaiah signed up. Here am I, send me. This is David's attitude in Psalm 51. To pray for forgiveness is to pray for conversion. And to pray for conversion is to pray for usefulness. So he prays for God-exalting service. Then I will, verse 13, teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Lord... If you forgive me and change me, then you can use me to show others who have strayed away the right way. I think David kept that vow in Psalm 32. Would you note the Psalm 30, 30, verse 13 of this Psalm, by praying this way, David is reminding us that grace motivates evangelism. We don't share the good news because we are better than others. We are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread of grace. Verse 14, deliver me from my blood guiltiness. God had forgiven him immediately and completely, and yet he still wrestled with the, with the memory and the recognition of the cold-blooded murder he had committed. There's a sense in which it still haunted him. But David takes even that to God. 
trusting that God is the God of my salvation. And he says, Lord, if you deliver me from my blood guiltiness, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David believed in choirs. He wrote this. He, had, he submitted this to the choir master for worship, but he did not believe in proxy worship. I'm, he would not go to church and let others do the singing for him. Lord, if you show me grace and mercy, my tongue will sing to you. And I'll sing not just of your mercy and grace. I will sing of your righteousness. First John chapter 1 verse 9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so verse 15 says, open my, oh Lord, open my lips so that my mouth will declare your praise. David is saying, sin mutes praise. But Lord, if you forgive me and if you change me, I want you to also use me to declare your Praise. Psalm 100 verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures and his faithfulness is to all generations. Then he talks about God pleasing sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. David is not repudiating the Old Testament sacrificial system here. He's just acknowledging that God cannot be bribed or bought off with blessings. You can't bribe God with offerings. That's not what pleases God. What pleases God, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken spirit matters more to God than a burnt offering. This is why Romans 12 and 1 should regularly be our prayer. Lord, in light of your mercy toward me, help me today to present my life on the altar as a sacrifice to you, holy and acceptable to you, which is my spiritual worship. Verses 18 and 19, he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole sacrifices. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In these two final verses, a couple of things I want you to know. In these final verses, David's prayer moves from personal to corporate. This is a deeply personal prayer, but now he's praying, verse 6 Verse 18, for Zion, for Jerusalem. And this refutes the notion, the foolish notion, that there is such a thing as private sin that doesn't affect others. Our sins always hurts others. And David, as the king, couldn't rightly pray for the city and for the nation until he got right with God. It's true for the godly today. We have so many concerns about things that are going on in the culture. But here David's saying here, when God's people get right with him, then he can use them to make a difference in the culture. Right people offer right sacrifices, David says in verse 19. 
He says that with his eye on the altar, but because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, we don't have to pray this psalm with our eye on the altar. We pray this with our eyes on the cross where Jesus paid it all. The bad news is today, friends, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The worst news is that there is nothing we can do to fix what our sin has broken. The good news is God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world who lived a righteous life, who died at the cross to make atonement for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. And the best news is today, friend, if you run to the cross and be honest with God about your sin and trust in the bloody cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ, today you can have free forgiveness, new life, and eternal hope. Jesus is our altar, our temple, our priest, our sacrifice. He is our hope. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him let us then continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Last year, a friend of mine from New Jersey got called to pastor a church three blocks away from my congregation in Jacksonville. When he came to town, my family took his family out to eat. I, I arrived before my wife and daughter. And as we sat there, he's asking me um, general questions about the city. And um, I'm, I'm answering, but I'm giving the most generic answers I can give. And uh, when my wife sits down and hears me answering questions about the city, she says, what's going on here? And this is, uh, this is where I have to be honest. I, I don't know anything about directions about this city. I, I've lived here for 15 years. I can tell you how to get to my house, my church, and heaven, and that's basically it. <laughs> and, and, and my friend said, HB, if you've lived here 15 years, how, how, do, you, how do you get around? And I said, man, I, I, have a, I have a good assistant. Her name is Siri. <laughs> and, and, and wherever I go, I, 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 I just pick up my phone and say, Siri, take me home. <laughs> and directions just pop up. Turn by turn directions to get me from wherever I am to the house. And sometimes with those clearest of directions, I still make the wrong turn. But I'm so glad that Siri doesn't say, you idiot, if you're not going to listen to me, just figure it out yourself. <laughs> nope. When I make the wrong turn, she just says rerouting. <laughs> Takes me to the place where I went wrong. Leads me to make a U-turn and guides me back to the right path. I am talking to someone here today who is going 
in the wrong direction. The fact that you are here today to hear me preach this message is proof that God is not finished with you yet. He bids you to acknowledge that your way is the wrong way and his way is the right way. To make a U-turn and run to the cross. And praise be to God. He's still, I was about to say he's a God of a second chance, but we blew that second chance a long time ago. He's the God of the third, fourth, 15th, 27th, 39th. He's the God of another chance. If you'll run to the cross and say to God, forgive me, change me, use me. Let's pray. Thank you for your word today, Lord. Thank you for its truth, its wisdom, and its authority. And thank you for your son, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. And thank you that his blood and righteousness opens a new and living way to you so that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness as he has been tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. Through him, may we draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. I pray that my friends here who are lost, would, you would bring them to an end of themselves, cause them to see the truth, power, and sufficiency of the person and work of Christ. Grant them the gift of saving faith today as they repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And help us as your children to draw near to you that you may draw near to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.